So I'd like to begin the talk tonight with a little story. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I, was, I had a, a friend and I went on a road trip in northern New Mexico. And it was just beautiful. And we were just having the best time, kind of wandering around, not with any pressure, no contact with the outside world. We were just kind of, you know, just that one of those summer times where you just feel completely open and free and fancy free. And it was great. We were just having the best time. We'd stop at a river and swim and go on picnics and hike in canyons. The weather was gorgeous. Then we stopped at a gas station uh, to get some gas one day. And they had this little, like, you know, take a fortune thing by the cash register. So I gaily took one, opened it, and it said, a major life crisis awaits you. (laughs) Don't imagine you can't lose all your money. You can. So even though I'm not terribly superstitious, it did put a bit of a damper on things. It, it, it was sort of a sobering reminder that this trip was not going to last forever, that this was not how life would always be, and that sooner or later, some kind of something would happen. Some kind of life crisis awaits all of us whether it is a loss, a death, an illness, an accident, a financial ruin, any of it or all of it can happen. It's not personal failing. It's simply the way it is. Robert has spoken about this. Wes has spoken about this. That we live in this world that is where we are terribly vulnerable, where we sense our fragility in the face of the unpredictable and the unknown. And in the face of that, what do we do? Of course, as humans, we look for security. Some kind of talisman that will protect us from illness, protect us from loss of any kind. And I would say that right now in our current uh, culture, the search for security is quite pervasive. The Department of Homeland Security. (laughs) They're out there trying to protect us. From what, I'm not exactly sure. We take out insurance policies against every possible kind of event. We fear identity theft. We fear hackers. We fear suicide bombers. We fear a possible pandemic of bird flu. Everywhere you go, you hear of some new threat on the horizon. Do you not? It's everywhere these days. So what is our response to all this? more efforts to protect ourselves. We'd all better get insurance against identity theft. (laughs) A friend of mine was actually 
um, a victim of identity theft. It wasn't fun. It was really horrible. And, you know, we talk in practice about no self, but that is not the kind of (laughs) loss we are (laughs) intending. Part of our government's response is in the form of aggression, violence, the idea of creating more walls in the world. You know, they're talking now about building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. It reminds me of China in the old days building the Great Wall to protect themselves against the hordes of invading Mongols. That's quite an impressive wall. I've been there. Of course, I think it had limited, you know, success in achieving what it set out to do. And once airplanes were invented, that pretty much, you know, defeated its usefulness. And now, of course, it's primarily a tourist attraction. (laughs) So we live in this world, and... The Buddha lived in a world that did not have these particular kinds of threats, perhaps. There were wars, there were homeless people, there was poverty, there was disease. But he found also in his life that great fear arose when he saw the inevitable fate of all human beings in the form of old people, dying people, illness that cannot be cured. And he saw, he in the, in the sort of the mythological story of the Buddha, these are called the three heavenly messengers because they awoke in the Buddha a desire to go on a search for something that would be a reliable source of security, a true protection And, of course, he went on his search, found what he was looking for, found what is called the unconditioned. He resolved the issue of his own fragile, vulnerable, and insecure human life for himself. And he shared with his followers what he had found, and he laid out a path that he recommended they follow so that they too could find this ultimate solution to the fragility and insecurity that we are all faced with by having a human birth. So even though we have these teachings, it still doesn't solve our problem, does it? We each must find this resolution for ourselves. No one else can do it for us. No teaching or teacher can find this resolution. We must find it for ourselves, each of us in our own way. I think we're also finding it for each other because when one person wakes up, it has an influence on everyone around them. Certainly as our world seems to get more chaotic and more violent and seemingly out of control, what awakens in me is more and more gratitude for this practice, for having a practice that offers a 
path, a way, a sense of where to go for true security. I feel in myself the truth of what Wes was talking about last night, that there is this hard wiring of the brain to react to threat, to perceived threat with greed, with hatred, with confusion, with fear, with judgment. And I also see in myself and in others that with practice and with the cultivation of this moment-to-moment awareness, there is a capacity that we all have to transform, to transform greed into generosity, to transform hatred into love and compassion, to transform fear, to transform confusion into clarity, judgment into curiosity. And this is what happens as we practice. This kind of transformation happens. We see it in ourselves, we see it in you. If it didn't work this way, we wouldn't be practicing all these years, nor would we certainly be teaching this. So this is a talk about where is true security to be found in this world? I know a woman who is a nurse, and she wrote an article. She's a, a practitioner of Dharma, she wrote an article about uh, some of the ways she sees people dealing with illness or the death of a loved one. And she writes this, she says, In my work as a nurse, I notice people sometimes view following a healthy lifestyle as a lucky charm. I'm going to eat right, do yoga, meditate, take supplements, and nothing bad will ever happen to me. When people are diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, they may be willing to follow any regime, no matter how far out it might sound, as a way of ensuring that they will get better. We are all trying to control things in our lives. We are upset when life does not bend to our control. That is the ordinary human experience without the Dharma. We say to ourselves, I will do the research, I will do everything right, and it will work. If it doesn't, I will sue. (laughs) This is how we respond to dukkha. I'm suffering and someone must be to blame. It doesn't occur to us that there might be no one to blame, not even ourselves. It might just be the nature of the way things are, undependable, impermanent, unworthy of our confidence. In a way, we can use even meditation and spirituality like another lucky charm. We may use our practice as a way of controlling a difficult situation. I will practice metta, and this problem person in my life will stop saying troublesome things to me. We want to have some safety or protection, even though we really have no control over others' behavior. So the Buddha gave a teaching about this called the Mangala Sutra, 
And Mangala is a word in Pali that means protective amulet. In his day, as now, people wore amulets meant to provide protection. On my right wrist, (laughs) on my right wrist, I have a white string. And I noticed that Wes has one on too. And, and Robert has a version of it, some lovely, a lovelier version than we have. We just have these white strings. Now, why would we be wearing these <laughs> white strings? Well, um, there was a, there's a wonderful monk in our tradition by the name of Achan Sumedho who came and did a retreat with all the teachers here at Spirit Rock last spring, I think it was, last summer. And at the end of the retreat, as is common in the Buddhist tradition, tradition, he handed out what are called protection cords. And they're meant to be, uh, you know, clearly this is not going to protect me in the case of some, you know, uh, automobile accident or a mugging or anything. It's not going to do much for me. But it is as a reminder of a, a connection with the Buddhist teachings. And so even though I, you know, it's kind of a, it's called a protection cord. And somebody once asked Jack Cornfield, what is it supposed to protect us from? And he said, ourselves. <laughs> so even when we, you know, took these, put these on our wrists, it was like, okay, well, if, in case your right hand is about to do something you're going to regret later, you might see this cord on your wrist and it might stop you. <laughs> So we have this strain of, you know, protection going through the tradition. True protection and security, however, are found not in cords or amulets, but what the Buddha called three qualities of mind and heart that are the source and foundation of our practice. What are they? Ethics or morality, the commitment to and practice of non-harming, the cultivation of wholesome qualities of heart and mind. The second is that of concentration or samadhi, the ability that we all have and that we are working with here of collecting our attention and stabilizing it in the present, bringing ourselves back into this present moment over and over and over again. You probably all noticed the sign when you enter Spirit Rock, the wonderful little road sign down there that says, yield to the present. If you keep yielding to the present, over and over again, moment to moment, you are cultivating this quality of samadhi, of collectedness of mind, and it builds a power that is very useful in our lives and useful in our practice. The third foundation of our practice is that of insight or wisdom, panya. And it's the cultivation of insight, of seeing deeply in a moment-to-moment way the truth of our unfolding experience. In the last two years, I bought a home in 
uh, southern Arizona in the desert, sort of semi-high desert. So it's a desert where a lot of things grow with a little water. It's quite a a fertile uh, desert. And so I have planted a garden. I have about 20 trees and many wonderful, strange, marvelous desert-type plants that I'm thoroughly enjoying watching as they display their interesting life. And the trees have been amazing because some of them have grown really fast. With a little water, they have, they've taken off. So I have some trees that are already like 12 feet high, even though they're less than two years old. And I admire these trees greatly because they grow in such, you know, conditions that sort of boggle my mind. That, uh, that, but they, they're, they're sturdy, they're strong, they're healthy, they're doing really well. Why am I talking about trees? <laughs> Training our mind and heart in these three qualities of ethics, of concentration, and insight. It is said that these three qualities all need to develop together. They are like a tree. A tree has roots, a tree has a trunk, and a tree has a crown of branches. A tree is not a tree without all these three parts. And in the same way, We could say our spiritual practice is not complete without these three aspects. A foundation in ethics, the the support of concentration, and the flowering of insight. So the ethics is like the roots of the tree, and the samadhi or concentration is like the trunk. And the insight or the wisdom is like the crown of the tree. So in, I like this understanding very much because it, it answers the question, how can I deepen my practice? It answers the question, how am I doing in my practice? The answer, of course, is that are you attending to all three aspects of your practice? If we are only attending to our samadhi, to our concentration, it's not complete. We could say or see that a thief or a murderer or a bank robber can have very good samadhi. Hackers probably have amazing samadhi. But they don't have the grounding in ethical uh, Qualities, so that the, what they're doing is not not for the good. No good can come of their actions. And we can also say that ethics alone does not support insight, does not support liberating wisdom. We could say that insight by itself is not enough. This world is not lacking in insight. Their world is overflowing with insights, but it doesn't seem to do much good. Because why? Because it's not embodied, it's not integrated, so it it lacks a certain power. We need all three of these qualities for our practice really to flourish, 
to have roots and to grow and to flourish. When we took the precepts at the beginning of the retreat, that is a formal step in learning what it means to have an ethical foundation for one's practice, what it means to live with non-harming, what it means to incline the mind in, these, in the direction of these wholesome qualities that begin to show themselves when we act in an ethical manner. What are these wholesome qualities? We've all experienced them. We all know them. We love them, actually, when they appear. Qualities of generosity, of kindness and compassion, qualities of patience, qualities of tolerance, contentment. You, you've all experienced these, I'm sure, in the, it's, it, at least in moments in the past few days even. And there, it's no accident. I remember my first long retreat was a three-month course back at Insight Meditation Society in the early 80s. And Jack Cornfield was one of the retreat teachers, and about, I don't know, six weeks or something into the course, I remember he came in the hall one night and he said, you all took the precepts at the beginning of this retreat. He said, I just want you to contemplate how much trouble you have stayed out of by being here. <laughs> Living by the precepts keeps us out of trouble, keeps us from a certain degree of suffering. There's a story... Um, from the Buddhist time about his close disciple and friend, Ananda. Ananda was out walking one day, and it was a hot day, and he came to a well, and he wanted some water. At that time in India, as it is today, there were strict laws which divided people into castes and classes. And the Buddha, being from a Brahmin family traditionally would have been forbidden to invite members of another caste to be part of his following, and yet he did. He went against the conventional uh, conventions of the time and allowed people of all castes and classes to come and live with him and to follow his teachings. That was quite radical in his time. So Ananda was following in the Buddha's uh, way, and when he got to the well, there was a young woman of a low caste there. Her name was Pakati, and he asked her for water. And she replied, O monk, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of low caste. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leaped joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. Ananda thanked her and went away. She followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, the woman went to the Blessed One and said, O Lord, 
Help me and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you, and practice it toward others. We all know that these expressions of generosity, of kindness, of love, of forgiveness, tolerance, cut across all distinctions of class or race or gender, orientation. In the Buddhist text, these qualities are often likened to the fragrance of sandalwood or the perfume of beautiful flowers. They're like a fragrance that certain people exude. They're like a fragrance that makes us feel wonderful and very attracted to be around such people with such big hearts. I think of the Dalai Lama. I was just recently at a teaching he gave in Tucson, Arizona, and, you know, he just, you just, it was like being in love for four days, you know, you just, you just felt such um, incredible love and kindness and compassion coming from him. And when we're with such beings, they remind us of our own capacity and our own compassion, our own goodness. Now, a very common um, kind of misinterpretation of the invitation to cultivate an ethical foundation is a feeling that many of us carry, it came up in one of my interview groups today, uh, around I'm not good enough, not being good enough and somehow feeling that in order to be good, we must not allow certain emotions to arise. Emotions like anger or jealousy or any of the, we could say, darker emotions, the the spiritually unacceptable emotions. We interpret the experience of those as somehow making us unworthy or not okay or not good. And this is a, there's a lot of suffering that some people hold in this understanding of not being good enough. This is not correct understanding because this practice invites us to open very fully to the full range of human experience and to see that true goodness allows for that, that we can allow ourselves to be however we are, and that doesn't take away one minute or one iota from our essential goodness as beings. Or as Mary Oliver so beautifully puts it, you do not have to be good 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to you, calls to you like the wild geese, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. When we know our essential goodness, which we all have, we feel connected to this human family. This is the true ethical foundation, this connection. So ethics as the root of our practice. So as I said before, although it does not um, lead necessarily to insight or the end of suffering, still it provides an excellent preparation for cultivating concentration. When we sit down with a mind which is racked by remorse, by guilt, by shame, by embarrassment, by, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or, oh, you know, all that kind of endless repeating judgment of ourselves, it is very difficult to concentrate. Much easier to concentrate, much easier to be present with a mind that is not racked by remorse, regret, self-judgment. Some Asian teachers have said about us as Western practitioners that trying to practice meditation without a foundation in ethical behavior is like trying to row a boat which is tied to a dock. We're just not going to get very far. The second quality of our practice, samadhi, concentration, sometimes called calmness, that gathering and focusing of our attention. I think it was Robert that mentioned it's not a rigid forcing of ourselves into the present, but rather an inviting and yielding surrender to the present. We yield to the breath. We yield to the pain in the knee. We yield to being here, to feeling the steps as we walk. We incline our mind to be present over and over again. And in doing so, we can discover what is here, what is true in this moment. A man named Leonard Jacobson wrote this. He said, you spend very little time in the present moment. Reality exists only in the present moment. Therefore, you spend very little time in reality. That kind of sums it up. I think of concentration in meditation as a container. As we open in meditation to the 10,000 joys and sorrows, we need a way to contain our experience And concentration provides that containment. We don't go flying off 
into reactivity. We don't run out of the room. We have a way to stay present. Whether it's being present with our own aversion or in a difficult encounter with another person, we have a way to contain the experience. Training the mind in concentration teaches us two essential things. One, how to focus and steady our attention so that we can penetrate beneath the the apparent solidity and permanence of our experience and discover a deeper stream of being. Secondly, training in concentration teaches us how to let go. How to let go. How to let go of those thoughts about the past, those thoughts about the future, those fantasies, those memories, those dreams, those analyses, those flights of fancy. Every time we return to the breath, we are training ourselves in letting go. And when we open the field of attention to include sensations, feelings, thoughts, hearing, sounds, we are also training ourselves in the capacity to focus and let go because any of those can be a way to return to present awareness. So this is its use. Throughout the different Buddhist traditions, you will find that the right balance between concentration and insight is talked about a lot. The Buddha once gave a talk about concentration and insight, and in it he said, there are four kinds of people, he said, One, the kind that is well-established in both concentration and insight. Two, the kind that is well-established in concentration but has no insight. Three, the kind that has lots of insight but no concentration. And fourth, the kind that we all think we are, the kind that has neither concentration nor insight. I think when I started practice, I was very much in the third category. I had lots of insight. I thought practice was like just the most exciting thing that had ever come along. I was so interested in what I was discovering. And I was just overflowing with insight. The problem was I had very little concentration, very little steadiness or calmness of being ability to stay focused and steady. So every new insight seemed to me to be cause for great thoughts about the future and what I should do and where I should go and all kinds of self-improvement programs. And I mean, I was just overflowing with insights. Luckily, I had a teacher who kept bringing me back into the process and teaching me how to concentrate, how to settle, and allow the process to unfold without my trying to make it happen or trying to elaborate on what was being presented. And I found over time, of course, that 
this, this quality of concentration developed. It brought a calmness to my practice that was quite new to me, quite a surprise to discover that I even had that capacity to be calm. The Buddha talked about thinking about our problems as unwise attention. So when we're overflowing with insight, we are kind of indulging in a kind of unwise attention. We're just sitting there thinking, thinking, thinking. Training the mind in concentration actually often leads to solutions that we could not have anticipated with a lot of thought. Once the mind has become concentrated, solutions often arise on their own. Have you had this experience? I know some of you are shaking your heads. Yes, it's quite amazing. We we almost it's almost like setting aside the problem and just doing the practice, surrendering to the instructions, to the process, and then one day you just know what to do. Buddhadasa, uh, the Thai meditation master, said, It is just when the mind is quiet and cool, in a state of well-being, undisturbed, well-concentrated, and fresh, that some solution to a persistent problem is arrived at. In our culture where we value so much information and working hard, taxing the mind. You know, we don't understand about the usefulness of not taxing the mind, of not stressing ourselves to try to resolve something. But knowing how to concentrate the mind, how to give it a place of rest and refreshment so that it can actually function more efficiently is a piece of wisdom that we learn from Dharma practice. What about when there's more concentration than there is insight? This is called dullness. When there's just, you know, an ability to sit forever, but nothing is going on. Absolutely nothing. So the Buddha advised in that case, we need to investigate a little bit more. We need to look at our motivation for doing this practice. Are we just checking out? We on a long hold, <laughs> pause button is on. What are we doing exactly here? We need more curiosity, more interest perhaps in finding truth. At some point in this practice, we see that we actually need to love the truth more than our neuroses, more than our distraction, more than our comfort. That this love of truth needs to awaken And curiosity, I feel, is a big component of this. Turning judgment into curiosity is a very useful skill to learn. Einstein, when he was asked if he attributed his discoveries to his great intellect, he said no. No, he didn't think he was that smart. He said he thought he was only 
he, he said he thought he only had greater curiosity than most people. I love that answer. A sutra from the Chan tradition of 6th century China says, These two, concentration and wisdom, are like the two wings of a bird. If their practice is lopsided, you will fall from the path. To one-sidedly cultivate concentration without practicing insight is called dullness. To one-sidedly cultivate insight without practicing calmness is called being crazed. Dullness and craziness, although they are different, are the same in that they both perpetuate an unwholesome perspective. So a useful question you might ask yourself is, in what situation of your life or your practice would it be useful to cultivate greater calmness, greater focus, greater concentration? In what situation of your life or your practice do you need to cultivate more insight, more investigation, more curiosity? The third aspect of practice, called panya, or insight wisdom, classically it's defined as insight into the three characteristics of existence, which Robert actually spoke about the first night, the truth of impermanence, the truth of no self, and the truth of suffering when we hold on. But we can also say that insight begins the moment we sit down and begin to make our experience the object of awareness. That's a huge turning of consciousness. When we begin to make our experience the object of our awareness, when we make the breath an object of our awareness, when we make hearing, seeing, stepping, the object of our attention, instead of just being lost in it, when we make thinking and emotion, when we make the hindrances the object of our attention, that is the beginning of insight. Because we are relating to our experience instead of just being lost in it, completely identified. In that little shift of attention, we are beginning to loosen the grip of suffering. And this shift of attention is what makes it possible for us to begin to notice that things are impermanent, that each moment things are moving, are changing, each arising comes, stays a little while, and then goes. That each arising is not who we are, no thought, no sound, no sensation defines us as a self. The greatest thought, the most fantastic experience you've ever had, or the worst crisis, or the most difficult mind state, or the greatest physical pain, all are marked by impermanence, by the fact of their being, them being impersonal, not caused by somebody inside of you 
producing them. Just phenomena. All, all apt to create suffering if we resist them or we try to hold on to them. Over time and through practice, these insights do become a living reality and we know them to be a description of all things, including ourselves. This body, this mind, this body, this mind, is marked by impermanence, by emptiness, and by suffering. This is the nature of all phenomena. This is a significant turn in practice when we open to these realities. They free us from trying to grasp what cannot be grasped, from looking for happiness where it is not to be found, and shows us how it is we suffer and how we can free ourselves. All the practice seems to be about seeing how it is we are holding on and seeing the possibility of letting go. And it is very empowering to look inside and see that we have this capacity to free ourselves. When we look inside, we come to see that there is no problem that cannot be solved by looking deeply into it. Again, Buddha Dasa says, It is a strange thing that the answer to any problem that a person is trying to solve is usually already present, though concealed in his very own mind. That's an instruction. When you can't figure something out, keep looking, keep investigating. The poet Rumi put it this way. He said, We are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. There are many expressions of this truth that all that we seek lies within. The Buddha found his own resolution through his well-developed powers of samadhi and his strong determination to awaken, to penetrate the illusion of birth and death by looking unflinchingly, and for a long time into his own body-mind process, he came to the final discovery. And what did he say? Are you ready? (laughs) He said, There is a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, this entire field of mind that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, 
without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. This is not an idle discovery, but one born of a great power of mind and great determination. So these qualities of ethical ethics and concentration and wisdom all function together, each supporting each other. Ethics supports concentration, concentration supports insight, insight supports ethics, and on and on. So we can use these to reflect on our practice. They're called three trainings because each requires uh, a willingness to practice, to train. We can ask ourselves at any moment in time, which one is strongest? Which one needs development? Where do I need to focus my attention? I think of them as like an instruction manual for living an awakened life. They are not theoretical, but very practical things we can practice. And we can practice them immediately. We don't need to read books or anything. We can just sit down and practice. Make these your practice, and you will always have a way to know if your practice is on track or not. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 23, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma.